Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois. And this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Light of the East is also funded by a grant from the Koch Foundation. Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loyal, your host. I greet you again and again with Christ is risen, and you respond, indeed, he is risen. Just as the early Christians did, as we see from the scripture, those who first heard about Jesus, they ran breathlessly to one another, proclaiming that Christ is risen. Indeed, he has. It really is true. And that is supposed to be our message, our countenance, our sense of being right now. It's supposed to be real. And what helps it to be real for us is the liturgy of the church. Yes, this is why going to church is more than just going to church, more than just an obligation, more than just a thing we do because we're good people. I mean, it's all fine. It's okay. But that's like reaching or settling for a C average. We're supposed to strive for an A-plus average. And the A-plus average is to experience the liturgy as a way of experiencing the reality of these events, of immersing ourselves in it. And that's why, especially in the Byzantine church, we have different themes that follow from Christ's resurrection. And this particular Sunday, we look at the theme of the myrrh-bearing women. We become them. In fact, we've been them ever since Pascha morning, actually, at the resurrection matins, when we take on the breathless, quick, lively, syncopated rhythm of the women at the tomb who find out about Christ being risen from the dead, the first to find out, and how they run excitedly, breathlessly, to the apostles. We've been there since Resurrection Sunday, but we are especially that today as we focus on those women in particular, and also a bit on Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. In other words, we focus on those who have honored the body of Jesus, who have recognized it for what it is, what it was, its sacredness. When he was on the cross, they took that body down reverently, as the liturgical texts say, and placed it in a new tomb. But then the women see the resurrected body. So this is all about our focus, where we're at in terms of the body of Christ, which now is not only Jesus himself, but Jesus present in the church. The church becomes his body of Christ now. 
And so the question is raised to us, are we the women at the tomb? Are we Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who had reverence for the body, reverence for the real presence of Christ in the church, the Eucharist, and of his body present in all ways in the church, and also for the church itself? The thing that helps us to focus are these liturgical themes, and this Sunday is the Sunday of the myrrh-bearing women. Now, there are several points here that are really helpful for us, really very revelatory of things even that are relevant today, things about womanhood, things about our spirituality, things about life, about Christ, Christianity, everything. We're going to look at some of these points through the liturgy of the church, as always. The liturgy is what immerses us into the mystery, the truth. It gives us that vision. One of the first things we're going to look at is how the liturgy reminds us of a connection, a connection of Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection with how he first came into this world. In fact, in the liturgical text, we say this, that, O King of glory, when you became incarnate, your mother's virginity remained, and you did not break the seals of the tomb. All creation rejoices when it sees your holy resurrection. Okay, it says when he came into the world, when he was incarnate, the Virgin Mary remained a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Christ. So now it becomes fitting that Christ is laid in a virginal tomb, a new tomb. One of the scripture passages said it was Joseph's own tomb, but it was virginal. In other words, no one else or their body had been there. It was a unique tomb, a special tomb. And so we have then also the reference to the seals of the tomb. Just as the Virgin Mary remains sealed in her virginity, Christ is born, yet she remains intact as a virgin, so too the seals of the tomb point to the fact that Christ rises as he was born in a miraculous way. It didn't have to come through the opening of the tomb. The rock, the great rock, gets rolled back and In Matthew's gospel, it says it was rolled back by the angels. Well, it had to be rolled back in some superhuman way because it was too heavy for humans to roll it back, especially a couple of guards or certainly the women at the tomb. In fact, they were on their way, and the scripture tells us they asked themselves, well, who will roll away the stone from the tomb for us? They knew they couldn't do it themselves, yet they wanted to go there and anoint Christ's body. They were so anxious to anoint his body, so concerned in their tenderness about him, they didn't even think about the practicality of how do we get to his body? I mean, that was providential because it would be to them that Jesus Christ would reveal his resurrection. It would be to the women first. Now, the liturgical text also, another one, says this. It makes these analogies, these connections between his birth and his death and rising from the tomb. At your conception, O Lord, an angel said to her who was full of grace, rejoice. At your resurrection, an angel rolled away the stone from the door of your glorious tomb. The first angel spoke with signs of joy instead of sorrow. The latter brought us good news of a Lord who gives life instead of death. Therefore, we shout to your benefactor of all, glory to you, O Lord. And you notice what happened? The angel comes to the Virgin Mary and gives a message of joy. So the angel is the one that enters you know, the Holy Spirit through the angel's voice enters into the Virgin Mary, although she remains a virgin. She conceives in that moment Christ in her womb. At his death at the tomb, the angel speaks of of Christ who had passed through the tomb, although it remained intact. The seal was unbroken. 
So you see, once again, these analogies are being made, these connections between Christ's incarnation and his death and resurrection. It's all one continuous movement, but it also points to the two basic cycles upon which the entire liturgical cycle of the church is based. Christ's coming in the world, the Christmas cycle, and then the Paschal cycle. But yet it's one continuous mystery with the cycle of his birth, having all kinds of things that hint at his resurrection. Even in the icon, the Byzantine icon of the nativity, Jesus is seen in a manger that looks like a sarcophagus. It's set against a dark background in a cave, just like where he was buried in a cave. The Christ child looks a bit man-like in his face, and he's wrapped with swaddling clothes that actually look like burial wrappings. So already we see the hint the connection, it's like, like one movement is going on at the same time here. Christ coming in and also rising and dying, dying and rising. It's, it's all happening in one movement and ingeniously depicted in an integrated way in the icon, in the iconography of the church, in its liturgy and iconography. This is, this is the great genius of the church. It integrates things. It brings us into the meaning point of the both and. It doesn't compartmentalize and separate things out. Nothing in the church is about just an objective reality, like, you know, in and of itself. It, there is context and integration to it, and it's absolutely ingenious. Next, we want to look at is a verse from this Sunday of Myrbearing Women. It's from the Matins service, the morning prayer, and it says this The women prepared myrrh to anoint you and secretly came to her tomb early in the morning. They feared the boldness of the Jews, and they expected the soldiers to be keeping guard. But their weakness triumphed over manly strength, for tenderness finds favor with God. And so they cry out, Arise, O Lord, protect us and save us for the love of your name. The salient word here and phrase is, But their weakness triumphed over manly strength. Now, we have to understand what this means. This might seem kind of, kind of politically incorrect today, but we're not interested in what's politically incorrect. We're BC here, Byzantine Catholic correct and biblically correct. What this means here is it really has to do with this word tenderness. And here are the women, and let's face it, their bodies are softer than men. They're softer emotionally. They're more elastic emotionally, but they're softer, they're more tender. But yet their tenderness is being seen here as strength because out of that tenderness, they do something very bold. So once again, we're in a both and here. They're not going to the tomb because they're trying to be macho and be strong. They're not going out of that kind of manly strength. They're going out of the strength that comes from their caring, their heart, that overrides any kind of fear. So that which seems to be tender now becomes strength. And this is what this verse means. So God points to womanhood and says that this is the kind of strength that supersedes even manly strength, or we associate with what is more directly strength in that sense. This is a strength of heart, a strength of character. And indeed, the most powerful force in the created order really is femininity, womanhood, let's face it. She was created last as God's masterpiece. The Virgin Mary is the masterpiece of the masterpiece. Womanhood ushers into this world the order of life and love. The most powerful thing on earth is what all creation is about what God is about, why he created things to share in himself in that order of life and love. It's what we desire most in life is life and love. We'll do anything for it. We're going in search of it hopelessly, obsessively. And that 
is ushered into reality through womanhood. So we see how tenderness actually becomes the most powerful thing. The other aspects of womanhood revealed in this celebration of the Murbury women today we will look at when we return. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion and to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church. We need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. You are listening to the Choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Church under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the Sacred Liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. Order online at byzantinecatholic.com. All we ask is a donation of $20 or more, which includes shipping and handling to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you I'm Father Anthony Bush, pastor of St. Stanislaus Kostka, the Sanctuary of the Divine Mercy in Chicago. And you are listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. It's no secret that Father Loya and other speakers from the Tabor Life Institute are available to speak at your parish or group on marriage and family topics seen through the lens of St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Other topics include Eastern Christian spirituality, and the significance of art in the church. The Tabor Life Institute can arrange for marriage encounters, parish missions, and can help your parish facilitate teen faith formation in either English or Spanish. For Father Loya and other speakers, contact the Tabor Life Institute by writing to taborlife at earthlink.net. That's Tabor spelled T-A-B-O-R, life, at earthlink.net. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loyer, your host. Christ is risen, indeed, he is risen. We're looking at the liturgical texts for this Sunday of the myrrh-bearing women, which also includes a mention of Joseph and Nicodemus, their strength and their courage. As the scripture says, Joseph went courageously to ask for the body of Jesus. He risked his life in doing that. But yet, the church puts in higher profile the courage of the women that comes through their tenderness. One of those great, ingenious, both-and realities of the church is so good at immersing us into. Another aspect of this resurrection, and as we celebrate it through the liturgy of the church during the Sunday of the Murbering Women, is this verse here that says, and again, this is from the morning prayer service, 
stripping me of the ancient garment that had been woven for me by the power of iniquity. You have clothed me, O Lord, in the garment of immortality. Okay, contrasting two garments here. Stripping me of the ancient garment that had been woven for me by the power of iniquity. The Eastern Fathers taught that, well, the way they articulated reality as we know it, and what will become of us, and how we were first intended, the way they articulated is with this term garment. They say that we had this magnificent garment. You know, when we, when we use the word garment in the church, we mean like how our entire appearance is, like our countenance. Like if you saw somebody, if somebody walked by you quickly, the first thing you would notice about them is the color of what they wear, you know, their garment. You wouldn't even recognize their face. You would just know, oh, somebody walked by me with a long blue dress on. That, that would be your most basic perception. So our garment, the way we're clothed, our outer countenance reveals the inner countenance. So we were clothed with a body that was very spiritualized. It was very beautiful, very glorified. We don't know exactly how it was, but it probably leaned more towards a spiritual character as much as it was physical. But when sin came in and everything got corrupted, everything got debased, everything like got knocked down, so to speak, in several ways, in several notches. And so we became more what the Eastern Fathers say, coarse, took on this coarseness, this crudeness and that the body could have at times. It wasn't as radiant. It wasn't as spiritualized, as glorified. It was more limited and just not as dignified as it was at the beginning. And so the liturgical verses remind us, they say, stripping of the ancient garment that had been woven from by the power of iniquity. So we got this, what they call garment of skin, and we became more fleshy, more visceral, more crude, more gross, and even had to kill animals and wear garments of skin to clothe us. But then what happens is it says, you strip me of that garment and you've clothed me, O Lord, in the garment of immortality. So Jesus takes on this body that is coarse and corrupted. He did not take on sin. I mean, he, didn't, he, didn't, he did not sin himself. He took on what we were, and he had to walk around, had to eat, go to sleep, go to the bathroom. You know, he had to do all things that a, a human body does. But when he took it on, then rose up, raised it up, especially when he brought it to heaven at his ascension, which will be in a few weeks from now, he again restored it to its original beauty. And even beyond this is what we call our destiny, or as St. John Paul II says in his Theology of the Body, the eschatological man. In other words, how we will be in the end times with bodies resurrected like Christ, reunited with our souls and beautifully, radiantly transfigured. Remember that when Jesus made his first appearances to the apostles and disciples, and of course the murmuring women, especially like, for example, to Mary Magdalene, they did not recognize him at first. They did eventually, though. So that's the key. You got to have both in there. They didn't recognize him at first because he was different. He was radiant. He was more spiritualized. You know, he went into the upper room. And again, it's always in the details. He goes into the upper room, although the door was locked. So he passes through it. So his body had to have been like spirit at the same time. It was very real because Thomas actually could put his hands in the actual wounds of that body. But eventually, Mary Magdalene recognizes Jesus. She, she thought he was a gardener, but then she recognizes him. 
and she goes to hug him, and he says to her, no, not, not yet, not now. Don't, don't hold me back. I still got to do something here. But she, doesn't, she did not recognize him at first. But what they're seeing is not only Jesus' resurrected, glorified body, but a hint at what they themselves will experience and we will experience if we are saved. You have to be saved. You have to be judged to be worthy of heaven. Our bodies will rise up, reunite with our souls, and be gloriously transfigured, just as it was with Christ. Remember, anything that happens with Christ, because he is the, the complete man, he is the human being, he is the new archetype, the new Adam, all of that is what is in store for us, all that beauty and that glory. We also see it anticipated in the Virgin Mary at her dormition, or as they say in the West, her assumption. We're going to look at one more feature here of the Murbang women, and that is the feature of this great fundamental spousal mystery, which is what the whole relationship with Christ, salvation history, and especially this Paschal season is all about. In the liturgical text, again, this is from the Vesper service for the Murbang women, we say this, Joseph asked for the body of Jesus. He placed it in his own new tomb. Okay, we mentioned that earlier. It was fitting for the Lord to come from the tomb as from a bridal chamber. You destroyed the dominion of death. You opened the gates of paradise to the human race. Glory to you, O our Lord. It was fitting that he came from a tomb as from a bridal chamber. We also sing during the Paschal season, Christ emerges from the tomb like a bridegroom from the bridal chamber and fills the women with joy. This is a great marriage between Christ the bridegroom and his bride. The cross becomes the nuptial bed upon which he would consummate mystically. It had to be very Byzantine, very Eastern, be mystical here, on which he would consummate the marriage between the new Adam himself and his mother, who now becomes at the same time the new Eve. This is why he calls her woman. Woman, behold your son. The only other time he called her woman was at the wedding of Cana, a wedding. And he called her woman then, not mother. Woman means Eve. Woman, behold your son. And so as he's laid in the tomb, he emerges. It's as though it's the wedding night. In fact, he, he passes through the night. They call this in the liturgical text, the Sabbath rest on Great and Holy Saturday, that's between Friday and Resurrection Sunday, it's like the connecting link. What happened? A lot of times we sort of skip over that. We put Jesus on the cross, we celebrate that, and then we're celebrating his resurrection. Well, what happened in between? There's something very salient. And when did it happen? It happened on the Sabbath. Remember, Jesus' day of rest. He's resting in the tomb. But his rest becomes a victory. He descends into Hades, breaks the bonds of death that held everybody back from becoming sanctified and entering heaven. Remember, no one could go to heaven until Christ paid the ransom, opened the gates. So they were held back, even the righteous, they were held back. They weren't unhappy. I mean, God took care of them, but they, they couldn't enter heaven as we know it until Christ paid the ransom and opened the, the gates of heaven by trampling down the gates of hell. That's what we sing also, Christ is risen from the dead. By death, he trampled death, trampled it down, you know, smashed it down. It's a war. It was a war. He did battle with Satan in hell and released the captives, as we see in the great Byzantine icon of the harrowing of hell, where Jesus is shown grabbing the arms of 
Adam and Eve, symbolic not only of them, but of all human beings who were retained from heaven. And they're in sarcophagi, each one coming from their own tomb, and he's raising them up. And around them stand all the people, the righteous people, the Old and New Testament, showing that they too now can rise up with Adam and Eve, all humanity, and enter heaven. So there's a great battle that goes on. And that's a very significant time, that timing between his death and his resurrection. What happened then? The most important thing happened. His dying on the cross has all kinds of meaning. We can do many programs just on that itself. But at the same time, it was also a gateway, an avenue, so that he could go down into hell and score the ultimate victory and release the captives there and make it possible for you and me to get to heaven. And all this is there in that liturgical text. In fact, we have a magnificent service on Great Holy Saturday morning called Jerusalem Matins, in which we celebrate and we enter into that mystery. We go down into hell with Christ and we essentially liturgically witness the battle. There is so much to be immersed into with this mystery of Christ's death and his resurrection. And today we do it from the perspective of those first women, the first to hear through their gift their genius of receptivity as women, the first to hear of the resurrection of Christ. I want to thank you for listening. Christ is risen, indeed he is risen. I am Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit byzantinecatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit byzantinecatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Radio gives us an opportunity to become part of a larger family. It can be so lonely when we are struggling in our faith or just try to live our faith on our own. But Catholic Radio connects us to that larger community of faith where we're able to get the support, the encouragement, and the grace that we need to not just struggle on, but to really celebrate all the blessings that God brings into our life through our Catholic faith. Dr. Greg Popchak thinks Catholic Radio is important. So should you. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh!